This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, welcome to IntelliCast. This is season five, episode two. And this is, I mean, I'm so excited for this episode, Brian. I don't know about you. I am too. This is a bit of a coup for us because I'm pretty yeah. sure they haven't had this. I haven't seen this guest on any other podcast. Maybe, maybe we're just nerds. That that, that might be maybe. one reason. Maybe. Um, but yeah, we have Howard Feinberg on, who is the Senior Vice President for Advocacy at the Insights Association. He's also co-director at the Census Project, and if you're a member of the Insights Association, um, you've probably read blogs of his around how he advocates for our industry. Um, he, he, and meaning we're going through a tough time as an industry with privacy regulations and data ownership, and you know each state is kind of doing their own thing. It's kind of led by California, but it's coming in Ohio and Virginia and Connecticut, and then we mentioned some other states in the interview, but it's something that as researchers, we have to stay on top of. And so he kind of walks through it. And um, I was so excited because I read about everything he puts out. We also have a great discussion around, around the um, non-competes around um, that he, the Insight Association has a point of view on. I thought that was, yeah, that was a bonus. That was a bonus topic. And I don't know why I thought this, maybe it's because, um, the pictures that he uses in his profile, like his professional pictures, I thought he would be like really dry. And I guess what I, my, my version of what an advocate and um, lobbyist, a lobbyist, the term lobbyist. He's like, I want to, I want to go out and have a beer or coffee and have lunch with this guy. Like he's fun and interesting. And like, we could ask him anything. And like, we're so fortunate to have Howard as part of the Insight Association in our industry. So I hope you all enjoy the interview as well. I think he was very personable. Um, I did not say it during the interview, but all of my knowledge of what a lobbyist does comes from House of Cards, yeah, that Netflix series. And I just imagine him going to some hole in the wall barbecue restaurant and just taking like congressmen and senators there to talk. That's that's what I figured a lobbyist did. So, you know, I did ask him. I don't think it was question one. I think it was question two. My question was, uh, what do you do? So I think that's going to be moving forward as, I mean, I've been doing this for five years, interviewing very important people. I think the, what do you do all day question might be my new thing. Cause I honestly didn't know what he, like, what, I don't even know what a lobbyist does either. And, you know, he meets with, he meets with Congress people and he meets with important influencers and their team and their people. And I thought that was really interesting. Um, that's what he does all day long and zoom calls in the last couple of years. Yeah, and it just sounds like his job got a little more difficult because of COVID because he needs yeah. that – his job's a lot easier on that in-person, hey, let's have a chat, go have a drink, smooth yeah. kind of thing, and he can't do that, so it's a little harder. Yeah, so um, we'll take the interview uh, with Howard. Um, it's relevant for every researcher, so I hope you listen to it and enjoy it. Thank you. 
Joining us now, I am pleased to have on um, Howard Feinberg, who is the Senior Vice President for Advocacy for the Insights Association. Howard, good morning. Thanks for joining. How are you? Good, Brian. Thanks very much for having me on. Yeah, so excited. Um, you know, Brian and I were, we've been batting around this topic to talk about it in detail for a while. And I was like, we could stumble through it. Um, or Howard, who writes on it, you know, constantly and keeps really the industry informed on what's going on nationwide um, through the Insights Association. Let's invite him on. And so you were gracious enough to come on. So I really appreciate it. I'm happy to, although I will state up front, I am not actually an expert on this. And most importantly for everybody, I am a lobbyist, not a lawyer. And nothing okay. I say is legal advice because you yep. would not want that. <laughs> yes, understood. Um, each individual company should be, uh, I'm sure has an expert in this, but um, this gets so complicated. And maybe we'll start off there is that with all, just, all the legislation, not just in the U.S., but I guess we'll focus on the U.S., um, it's kind of hard to keep track of, especially in the U.S., where we have, you know, 50 states and potentially 50 different laws we have to think of and research. That's just really challenging, right? Agreed. And, you know, we're doing our best at the Insights Association to try to keep our members up to date on what they need to be looking out for. You know, so in addition to California with the California Consumer Privacy Act, you have Colorado and Virginia their, their own comprehensive privacy laws passed last year. Um, they're different from CCPA. They're, they have a fair amount of similarities. And they're actually reasonably similar to each other in Colorado and Virginia. They both come into effect in 2023. Uh, but 2023 is also when California will transition to the California Privacy Rights Act, the CPRA, uh, which basically turns changes a bunch of the definitions in CCPA and although it raises the threshold on a couple things, it mostly just makes it worse uh, <laughs> in all yeah. sorts of ways and expands it. Um, yeah. So we're trying to keep everybody on top of those, but also doing the best we can from an advocacy standpoint to uh, hold off or you know improve as many state legislative efforts as we can. Uh, there were bills all you know, tons of states last year trying to pass their own comprehensive mishmash privacy bills. Uh, you know, trying to keep all that at bay while trying to further a federal privacy law, which is really what we've been after for years, is something comprehensive at the federal level that would preempt all these different state conflicting laws. Because as you said, there's, there's, no, there's not any realistic way for anybody but the largest companies to be able to keep on top of the state landscape. And that's not even taken into account of other countries. That's right. Just the US. Right. Right. All right. It's challenging for us. We're a small company, but we do global work. So right. we have to stay on top of obviously GDPR and Brazil and Canada. And it's just a pain in the butt for us um, that doesn't have a full-time um, attorney um, sorting through all of these different laws and making sure we're compliant. And yeah, no, it's definitely a huge hurdle for you know, most companies. Uh, and yeah. the, the best I can tell you is the upside that a lot of companies in the industry have is if you have had to delve deeply to try to figure out how to comply with one of these laws, you have a leg up on figuring out how to comply with the next one. Because of the depth of things that you have to go through in just understanding how your own internal data infrastructure works, how you work with contractors and vendors and clients, 
And yeah, all of that, all that level of detail that you have to go through with experts throughout your company, that's what sets you up for any hope of success in dealing with the next set of hurdles. So people yeah. that were already up to speed on GDPR, they're able to transition a little bit easier to CCPA and, and you know, they'll be able to transition just a little bit easier to Colorado and Virginia and whatever fresh hell comes this year. <laughs> like, right. uh, and, you know, and it's also how I ended up being a supporter of uh, ISO because, you know, originally I was, you know, sneering at international standards organization stuff because to me it's something you really only should be using for stuff like manufacturing and electronics right. and things. But in reality, although it's it's very European in mindset, the problem is that because as we expand our regulatory state in the United States, um, now these regulations, while they're not duplicating Europe, they do require a huge amount of you know bureaucratic insight into your own organization and. Yeah, you know, I'd put in a, a pitch then you know, for ISO, both on a from a data security standpoint, and even just there's a market research focused ISO. Um, those are bureaucratic pains in the butt, but yep. they are also very useful for helping a company understand its own internal processes and workings with other other companies that would put you in a good position to figure out how to comply with different privacy laws as they come down and try to crush your business. Yeah, um, you know the way you're talking. I would love what what is your day like as in your role as a lobbyist? You sit in. I don't even know what that's like. Like, what what is your job like? Like, what do you do? <laughs> well, sadly, since COVID, it's become a lot more of time at my desk than it used to. Yeah. Uh, because meetings and such go on primarily on Zoom and by phone, unfortunately, or you know, just a lot of discussion by email. Um, it used to involve a ton of time on Capitol Hill, uh, just uh, hanging out and frankly in the uh, house cafeterias and uh, catching up with various people and a lot of meetings with staff in the House and Senate. Uh, there's a lot less of that, unfortunately, at the moment when we're not allowed on Capitol Hill without an escort, which means most staff don't want to meet in person. It's too much of a pain in the butt for them. Yeah. So we you know, do things on Zoom and we a uh, ton of talk by email, much more than uh, they used to. Frankly, congressional staff used to dodge emails much more obsessively than they do now. But now because they have so successfully dodged in-person meetings, they have no choice but to actually look at their email more often. Yeah. So there's things that you know, ebb and flow. Uh, I you know, work, I'm, obviously, practically, I work from... Uh, home rather than from a, a downtown office. Uh, Insights Association, we got rid of our you know, math, our in-person uh, leased office. We have an office front uh, and I'm still going downtown for meetings when I have them. Uh, but so it's going to be as as needed, which means I'm hoping as I've got meetings picking up even next week. So I'll be downtown uh, meeting with a few different coalitions that we work with on uh, issues like independent contractor status and protecting that. Uh, I've got a couple privacy-related coalition meetings coming up in the next couple of weeks. I'll be downtown for those. And hoping to see things transition for in-person meetings, which are much more amenable to someone like me yes. when you're used to lobbying in person. So the, yeah. the day involves a ton of processing of information. There's a deluge of news that I have to sift through to figure out uh, what's going on with various policy issues. Uh, analyzing legislation takes up 
a ton of my day um, and I'm doing it all the time and I my backlog is obscene. Uh, there's just yeah, so sure. much. Uh, but, you know, so it's not exactly glamorous, let me tell you. Yeah, it sounds interesting to me, at least. You know, we partnered with, um, I'm sure you know of John Zogby, and we partnered on a report with them, to, and it was in, had it entitled it at K Street, and which I I guess that's the lobbyist area or traditionally the lobbyist area of DC. That's that's about the extent of what I know about what you do, but I um, I'm happy you're doing what you do for sure. Um, can you talk a little bit more about you know CPRA, which is is that replacing CCPA next year? What should we be thinking about as researchers as that kind of transition happens? Uh, so it's got a bunch of new definitions and they trying to clarify things, which of course in California's way means clarifying it to make it more difficult or <laughs> more confusing. Uh, yeah. It's just sort of their way. I think of a few different useful ones. Uh, actually trying to expand and clarify what it means to de-identify data. I think that's a hugely important thing for our own industry. Uh, that's an important thing to look at and how they're actually discuss how, what, sorry, what we describe as personal information. Yep. Uh, obviously a key definition in any of these kinds of laws. Uh, they're tinkering with that. Uh, honestly, they've dug a lot in on what research means, but unfortunately it still doesn't mean most of anything that happens in the insights industry. It's very narrow, scientific, publicly, you know, release kind of research. So it's not as helpful. It's not so helpful to us. Uh, but mostly it's adding a lot more, a lot more restrictions and it's creating, they've created a new agency to regulate and enforce the California, uh, but CPPA, uh, blocking. Hold on a second. <laughs> Sorry, the California Privacy Protection Agency. So the yeah. California Privacy Protection Agency, the CPPA, which is led by a former FTC staffer who is really pretty unhappy with industry. I think let's put it that way. Um, <laughs> yes. Um, but, you know, so this board and is working on regulations and they have a process to follow. We've filed comments on those. Um, that is the new agency that we're going to have to deal with. But they're kind of starting from scratch. So we had been dealing with the California Attorney General's office, which obviously privacy is not their primary focus, but they'd had they'd been working on privacy and data security issues for years and building up expertise. And so... I'm a bit concerned going into this that we're going to be dealing with an entirely new agency that is really just getting its feet wet, figuring out what it wants to do and what it wants to be when it grows up. Right. Yeah, that's scary to me. In some ways, though, am I wrong that I feel like we're fortunate that California, I feel like they're kind of leading the charge in this. Um, they're very strict. And so, you know, obviously a lot of research takes place in California. It's a huge economy, both clients buying research and uh, market research agencies, as well as sample companies are headquartered there. And so I'm hopeful that that can kind of lead the charge industry-wide to ensure compliance. And am I just dreaming or is, is, is that a false sense of security or no? Um, the difficulty with it is that California is always going to be trying to be 
the next level of pain. Uh, so no matter what you get, so if if the rest of the 50 states all copied California's law, yes, California would say, oh, well, that's good. Now we need to tighten the screws a little bit more. Because because part of there's a desire to be on the cutting edge. Yes. Um, and, you know, that's nice and all if you're a tech company, but it's not particularly helpful if you are a state government. Yeah, and the legislation. Yeah, yeah. So between the, a, an aggressive regulator and an aggressive legislature that really doesn't much care about the actual impact of the laws that it passes on any of the businesses that have to operate in California, um, it's kind of problematic. And yeah. that's why we push so hard on preemption, because we're not just trying to preempt what California did before. We're worried about cal- what California is going to do next. So one, one yeah. of the key pieces of CPRA was a provision that makes it almost impossible to downgrade any of the so-called protections in the law. So anything that you do to amend it in the future has to be something that is more restrictive and more, quote-unquote, protective of consumers. And so that makes any kind of reform of CPRA in the, anytime soon in the future extremely difficult. Yeah. Um, I don't mean to bring the house down with you know, <laughs> all sorts of depressing stuff. It's, it's just sort of the reality that we have to deal yeah. with in, in our industry. Well, what, you know, I'm a big states' rights person, but I feel like how is there not momentum for a federal legislate for federal law on this? What's the holdup? Um, <laughs> well, there are a number of holdups, but the most important come down to the t- two of the most important issues, uh, and that's whether or not you're going to preempt the state laws because you know, certainly folks on the left and the majority of the Democrat caucus in House and Senate, they are not interested in preempting the state laws because they want someone like California to be able yeah. to be the lead and to set the standard. And the other side of it is how are you going to enforce this law? Yeah. And you know, are you going to have it enforced by private litigation or not? Uh, yeah, so the model legislation that we put together with our Privacy for America coalition is focused on the the Federal Trade Commission and state attorneys general as the enforcers of the law. That you are empowering and, you know, we're trying to bulk up the FTC to give them the, the proper power to be able to do this uh, mo- most effectively. But we're very concerned at any attempt to add private rights of action because that will end up bankrupting a ton of our members and potentially on very, you know, because data privacy sometimes is kind of loosey goosey concept and the details are very difficult to nail down on some of these laws. They're really vague at best. And that allows for a huge amount of leeway in litigation. It's what drove our industry, you know, to a certain extent away from doing research by phone because for a lot of companies, it just wasn't worth the hassle of a TCPA lawsuit because that law ended up being drawn so broadly that no one could get away with using a phone. Right. And that's exactly what we're worried about happening with the federal privacy law. So those are, those two issues are the major impediment to passing legislation tomorrow. Frankly, if you could get agreement on those two issues, a lot of the other smaller things would probably wrap themselves up. Yeah. That makes sense to me. Absolutely. Um, still challenging. Um, yes. 
what advice would you have? And I'm not asking for legal advice, obviously, but as we, as researchers, you know, you know, small companies like us, you know, I honestly am happy to be an Insights Association member, really to learn from you. You put out blogs, you put out summaries, links. That to me is huge. And then, you know, we have to do the due diligence. And not just me, I'm a researcher. Uh, Brian is a marketer. And so, you know, that's a whole, that has a whole separate impact. And in fact, a scarier impact in many ways than the research side um, because of the, all the cool stuff we can do with marketing. But what advice do you, would you have for, you know, Insights Association members and researchers? Well, certainly maintaining your membership, very important. <laughs> um, I think, you know, certainly having counsel uh, is important. You don't need to have them in-house. I mean, a lot of the focus that we put on the information that we are sharing with members is not, you know, we're not sharing it with the expectation that every person out there is supposed to become an expert on every law and all the details, but we're trying to provide as much as possible so that when you're in a bind and you're talking with experts, that you're, you can provide them with the details that they need to understand it from our industry's perspective. Because it's very, look, tons of companies have their outside counsels and they, those outside counsels are not, they are not necessarily expert in the industry that we're in. And they're not necessarily expert in privacy either. Right. And, you know, a privacy counsel tends to be more expensive. But if we're trying to set you up for success in having as much information as useful to and tailored for the insights industry as we can. So that when you have to make those decisions, when you have to talk with a lawyer, when you have to, you know, get in deep with uh, someone who's going to be your privacy officer, or if you're, you know, if you're dealing with GDPR, you have to have an outside DPO. You want to have as much information, not just for yourself, but also to be able to share with them. Because the worst thing with a lawyer, billable hours. Yeah, you don't want to have yes. to. We don't want our members to have to pay an outside counsel. Uh, 20 hours for them to get up to speed on some obscure issue if we can resolve that ourselves yes. in uh, a short article. Yeah. And so it's, that's why I come back to membership is, membership is important. Absolutely. Uh, Brian, do you have any more questions before I moved on to the next topic? Um, really more looking at this year, 2022, you mentioned that Colorado and Virginia passed new laws last year. They go into effect in 2023. What does what do you think this year 2022 holds? Is it going to be will we finally see that federal version or are we going to be playing whack-a-mole with more state versions? Uh, we are going to be playing whack-a-mole. Uh, Washington state has come real close uh, three cycles in a row. So this is going to be yet another session where they're going to you know push to the limit to see if they can pass something. And what they've been looking at has been pretty close to, or at least along the same lines as Colorado and Virginia, but they've been very heavy on private right of action. So you can have private lawsuits to enforce it, which gives us heartburn. Um, but yeah. at the federal level, I don't know that legislation is going to advance this year. And you know, to be honest, partially just because it's an election year, um, that tends to impede most legislating. Um, however, the Federal Trade Commission has been quietly going about starting a rulemaking on privacy. Um, it sounds like it might be a very broad data privacy rule. 
Uh, so they're coming up with their own regulations. We're already talking with our Privacy for America coalition, figuring out how we can best work with the FTC during the process to get that to look as much as possible as something that much as as close as we can to what we came up with with Privacy for America, a workable federal regulation that would allow for the insights processes to work, allow for research to be done allow for analytics to happen um, while protecting consumers to the greatest extent possible. And so I think a lot of the action this year is going to be at the Federal Trade Commission. Okay. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm the the individual lawsuits gives me a little heartburn just because I see it as another ambulance chaser. Yes, let's just do frivolous lawsuits. You have someone who gets upset that maybe they didn't get their incentive on time or something like that. Yeah, I'm going to sue for this and just death by a thousand paper cuts. Definitely. I mean, and I'm not someone that I don't oppose the whole concept of a private right of action in any context, because honestly, it's one of the advantages that we have as a nation. You know, if I look at uh, look at other countries, the accountability that comes from a private right of action can be very important. And you deal in a, in a healthcare context, while you might you want to put limits potentially on you know the way you deal with damages. Right. Um, a lot of countries don't allow any kind of action. Everything is up to the state. So if you know, you get messed up, you have a surgeon ruins you, and you come out the other end of a surgery not better but worse, uh, and very tangibly and obviously. You don't really have any recourse in a lot of other countries. In our country, you do. There is a court system and a process set up to help adjudicate this because damage has been done. The difficulty when you apply it to data privacy, though, is pretty obvious in that we're talking about intangible things where damages are uh, nebulous at best or they're reputational or you've they get they're very difficult to pin down. And that's why the private right of action in, in the context of data privacy is so disturbing, because you're talking about things that are really vague and not at all objective. Right. I get that. Oh, you had the data was breached and now your identity was stolen and maybe your house got sold out from under you because someone stole your identity. Yeah, that's a same with Tangi- your yeah. surgery. Tangible I get damage. that. Tangible the, damage. I, hey, I did. Hey, your email address got out, and I'm going to sue you for a million dollars because my email address is out there. Well, what did it actually do? That's that's where I like really. Yeah, there's or your or your IP address. Yeah, right. So yeah, yeah there's you know, variations in scale. Uh, so yeah, no, I, I agree with you. It's it is concerning. Again, that's why we've you know put such emphasis on, on that fight. At the federal level as well, that you know, we're, it's not the, a good way to enforce this. We have a regulatory agency in the Federal Trade Commission that knows privacy intimately, has been working on it for decades, and if you give them the right guidelines and guardrails and spruce up their power you know, to focus, you know, very tangibly on certain things, they'll be able to actually do a good job of actually protecting consumers, and I think a better job than and. In, the, in a context in which consumers will end up being protected and companies won't be just driven out of business. <laughs> right. 
I think right. bad a- in that kind of scenario, bad actors can actually be driven out of business instead of good actors. Because in a private right of action context, it tends to be good actors being driven out of business because they're the easiest ones to track down and sue. Right. Awesome. Um, that's a lot on regulatory issues. I really appreciate that. And then, you know, we had a last minute topic. I, I just found out actually today that you put out an article about um, it's entitled Labor Market Competition and Non-Compete Agreements. And I'd love if you kind of maybe briefly mention what that is. And um, I love it that Insights Association has a, a position on non-compete. So maybe you can kind of briefly summarize that. Yeah, it was brought to us by a lot of our members uh, early on in the COVID crisis as people were getting laid off from various jobs, but were finding that they were under non-compete agreements that prevented them from getting another job at a time when you know, the economy is in crisis and uh, you know, labor is hard to be had and jobs are hard to be had. And uh, uh, it was a real concern. So we came up with an industry position uh, at the time focused on uh, opposing non-compete agreements that are uncompensated. Yes. Uh, and you know, so you know, at this point, we're turning in response to a Federal Trade Commission workshop where they were looking at non-compete agreements and other issues of competition in, in the labor market. Uh, we responded focused on, again, on uncompensated non-compete agreements for anyone but you know, the senior staff. So really, you know, C-suite and the top people, I think there are reasons why a company may look to have a non-compete agreement at that top level. But we're more concerned about the lower level staff that are getting, would get locked into a non-compete agreement and not, and not be compensated for it when they're left on the bench for six months or a couple of years. Um, and that the only way they could get another job would be to go outside the industry which is not in the industry's interest and it's not in their yeah. interest. It's, it's not fair to the worker. It's not fair to the industry. And Howard, can I ask a clarification question on that? When you're sure. saying non-compensated, are you talking like, okay, I'm laid off. I get laid off because of the situation with COVID and I'm given two weeks severance. Is that considered compensated, but my non-compete goes for a year? Or are you saying like, non-compensated, like I have to be paid through that year that I'm not allowed to work in the industry? Uh, to be honest, we didn't get into specifics on it. I, okay. I would, And I would argue that two-week severance is not compensation uh, yes. for, for a non-compete unless it's two weeks non-compete. Okay. Well, oh, that that's good. <laughs> I mean, you said it. Um, we, we, we're a small industry and it really, we want to keep the talent in our industry and it's horrible when people leave our industry. If you're out of it for a year, you know, you may not come back. And so I'm really glad, um, and, you know, it's unfortunate how this happened <laughs> during COVID and a lot of layoffs, but I really hope that, uh, you know, companies try to do the best they can to keep the talent in. I understand intellectual property, understand the rule around not wanting to, you know, your top salesperson stealing all your clients, but there's other things you can do around non-solicitation and non-disclosure agreements that are legally binding that companies can do. And so, um, you know, my opinion, I think most reasonable people's opinion is you, you know, hey, you can go work elsewhere. You just can't steal our secrets or our clients for X period of time, right? 
Yes, and there we have, like you, you took the words right out of my mouth. Uh, there are standard legal agreements that are not in question that you can use for those purposes. And I think a lot of people had, I don't know if it's laziness or that we've gotten distracted, that a lot of companies had focused on non-competes as an alternative means of pursuing those goals. Uh, and when in reality, it's, you know, you can use a non-disclosure, non-solicit, uh, a non-compete agreement is so problematic, even just from a legal standpoint. There are multiple states where, like California, non-competes are almost not unenforceable. Right now, why? But and yet, tons of you know, Silicon Valley is overloaded with companies that use non-competes aggressively. They oh. just don't enforce it. They'll remind you about it, and they're just not allowed to enforce it. But it's. It's a weird setup where, yeah, okay, yeah. so we're going to try to intimidate you by telling you that you have a non-compete agreement, but we're not actually going to enforce it. Yeah, they don't right. tell you that necessarily, but it's designed there to, it's it's like a deterrence mechanism. Yes. Uh, See, so we got, a, sorry, go ahead, Brian. Oh, I was going to say that, I find that interesting because I would have thought that it's not used in that area because we know California doesn't allow them to be enforced. And you read the news every day. This Apple executive's going to Samsung or Facebook to Instagram or what, so on and so forth. You see that all the time. So that's just, that seems really interesting. Yeah, but again, it comes back to the focus on the especially lower level staff um, who, yes. you know, if, if you're relatively new to the workforce, how would you know? Right. You know, it's, <laughs> it's, yep. it's very easy to be end up being abused. Uh, and so... It's a messy legal situation in a lot of states, you know, whether or not these are enforceable. Uh, but the whole concept that you would have it and apply it when it's not enforceable, I find bizarre. It's a weird kabuki theater that doesn't make sense to me. Uh, so I think that we're, we're just trying to take a measured approach to this and seeking a, you know, a reasonable position of that people should be compensated or you shouldn't have it. Uh, Thing. And you know, we'll see how it goes. It's, it is. I think it is in the interest of the industry and the profession that works in it to try to allow people as much leeway, work-wise, as we can. Agreed. Um, anything else you'd like to promote, Howard, um, other than the Insights Association? Before we let you go, back to doing your job. <laughs> No, that's the primary thing. We're uh, working hard to advocate on behalf of the industry every day in all sorts of weird ways uh, and, and, part and uh, primarily in the U.S., but trying to help out partners overseas as well okay. and across borders. So I think there's a lot of new things. You'll be seeing a, a new website coming for the Insights Association in a few months. We're working on that right now, redesign of that, and hopefully some you know, new useful information to go along with it. But in the meantime, uh, the one warning for any Insights Association members that are listening, uh, majority of the information that you are missing out on is behind the members-only wall. So, yep. And you'll never see it if you don't log in. So make yep. sure you log in when you go to the website. Uh, hopefully we'll have that fixed on the new one. It'll still be displayed. You just won't necessarily be able to access it unless you're logged in. But yep. well, the little hiccups of life. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I'm obviously a huge proponent. I've been, I don't know, almost every episode I've promoted. Um, it's, it's done a lot for my career. And so I encourage everyone to be a member, every company to be a member, every individual to be a member. And 
you know, the, the Engage platform is where I get a lot of this information. I get the government affairs um, daily email, uh, which is a fantastic summary of what's going on. It's a quick read. And you can, and the, the thing I love about you is you're also approachable. Like if I have a question about something, I can email you and I'll get a response, which is awesome too. So um, I, re- I always have appreciated Inside Association. Do great work. Thank you, Brian. Thank you guys for having me on. This has been great fun. All right. Thank you. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.